Life Audio. You are listening to The Beckett Cook Show with your host, Beckett Cook. For more information about Beckett and his ministry, visit his website at beckettcook.com. To help support the podcast, visit patreon.com slash the Beckett Cook Show. Please consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving a five-star rating. Hey guys, welcome to the show. My guest today is Dr. Corey Miller, who is the CEO and president of Ratio Christi. Ratio Christi is Latin for the reason of Christ, and it's a global movement that equips university students and faculty to give historical, philosophical, and scientific reasons for following Jesus Christ. And so uh, Dr. Miller is a seventh-generation Mormon who came to Christ in 1988, so we're going to talk about that a little bit. He has served on the pastoral staff at four churches and has taught nearly 100 college courses in philosophy, theology, rhetoric, and comparative religions. He's also an author. He has a master's degree in philosophy, biblical studies, and philosophy of religion and ethics, and his PhD is in philosophy Philosophical Theology from the University of Aberdeen in Scotland. But first, a word from our sponsor. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. So welcome, Dr. Corey Miller. Thanks for having me on here, Beckett. Glad to be here. Very, very excited about this. So glad you're here. And so before we get into what Ratio Christie is all about and uh, what you guys are doing there, Tell us about how you were a seventh generation Mormon and you came to Christ in 1988. How did that happen? So I grew up uh, with, you know, having an ancestry that was a bodyguard of Joseph Smith, the founder and the first uh, ever splinter group of Mormonism. And there's been 400 since Joseph Smith's death. Most people don't realize that. But the highest level and first splinter group took place with my family because Joseph Smith was trying to assign one of his first counselor's wives to himself, not just in the hereafter, but in the here now. And my seventh gen joined him in the split. My sixth gen chose Joseph Smith and be you know, as, as a bodyguard and then later a colonel in the Mormon battalion and took 36 or had took uh five or six wives and had 36 children of which I'm a descendant and uh, went to Utah with Brigham Young and so forth. Uh, Brigham Young spoke at his funeral, but this was uh, my uh, legacy of my family that I had inherited. And so I was never looking for a new religion. I had moved away from being an active LDS person 
who was very active being younger. I delayed my baptism because I wrestled with the conundrum of what true Mormonism teaches about salvation and what pop level Mormonism teaches. And I thought, if I'm going to ever make celestial glory, I can't get baptized at age eight and get my sins washed away and then sin at age nine and 10 and give an account for this. If I'm going to be with Heavenly Father in celestial glory and make this work, I got to wait until I'm 88 years old on my deathbed and beat the system <laughs> until I just uh, was terrorized as a child thinking, what if I get hit by a semi truck having failed to be baptized by the proper priestly authority at the age I should have been. And so I did get baptized, but I ended up getting sick of seeing some of the hypocrisy in my own neighborhood and own ward and experience that I never rejected Mormon theology. I, I rejected Mormon sociology, the people that I was around. And and I, I ended up falling into a bad crowd and going the adolescent direction that I shouldn't have. But I always maintained my belief in my Heavenly Father in, in a non-ideal LDS home uh, that I was raised in a single parent home, which wasn't obviously ideal. Um, I still believed the Heavenly Father was the father that I never had. And um, I got an invitation to go to California to a non-denominational Christian camp the summer before my junior year of high school. And it was called Hume Lake Christian Camp. Uh, wasn't going there to convert, but if I was going to spend the entire summer at the beach by uh, invited by one of my friend's fathers uh, to do this, then I had to go to that camp for a week. The guy spoke on hell, scared the hell out of me and heaven into me. <laughs> and I saw the love of Christ and the grace of God make sense for the first time in my life. I never understood grace because I never understood the consequences of sin. I thought we were all going to some degree of glory, except for maybe Satan and his followers. But now I realized I owned it. I, I believed that I owned it. And I knew I was in a terrible position and I, I was a terrible person at the time. Um, and so I came to Christ, moved, uh, went back to Utah at the end of the summer, packed my bags and moved to California, my junior year of high school, where I got discipled, uh, mentored and uh, started giving some feed in and feedback on what Mormonism was really teaching and able to compare that. And then when I went back my senior year of high school in Utah to graduate, I was now faced with an onslaught of extended family and friends throwing the threats out of my future eternity if I didn't reread the Book of Mormon now for the sake of truth rather than just tradition. And I thought that was wise advice. And when I did so, though, I found it to be wholly problematic, and it, it resurrected in me views that I had held, having been educated all my life, that the Bible is also full of holes, but it never mattered because we had modern revelation and living prophets. Well, I no longer believe that. So how do I know the Bible's reliable? How do I know God even exists? And if so, which God? And so I went into a period of skepticism, and that's what sent me into an endless trajectory of comparative religion and philosophy, uh, an insatiable field of knowledge. And I realized, wow, um, Christianity really has it. Uh, the recent neo-atheist, Hersey Ali, that converted and said that Christianity has it all. That's what I started to see. And even though I came up with doubts that I, I needed to wrestle with, um, Christianity had it. And my experience of Jesus now is getting confirmed by this thing called Christian apologetics. And then eventually, long story short, I ended up becoming a professor in comparative religions and philosophy, taught for 12 years at Indiana University, and Christianity really has it all. <laughs> It certainly does. Well, that's amazing. Well, praise God that you yeah. you came to Christ. Um, okay, so let's Ratio Christi. What is Ratio Christi? What when, when did it? When was it founded? Tell us tell us a little bit about that. 
So Ratio Christi means the reason of Christ. It is a campus ministry that is distinct from common apologetics ministries in that it is on the campus. It's distinct from other campus ministries in that it focuses intently on apologetics evangelism because the read in our culture today is no longer the campus crusade stuff of the 60s or 70s or 90s. It no longer can assume that we are, um, you know, in the synagogue, as it were, bringing the scripture, trying to prove with reason that Christ is the Messiah. We've been on Mars Hill for at least a generation. That's why we lost the millennials. It's an organization that has read and diagnosed the culture properly. And we are on Mars Hill. And so we need to have apologetics there. And so our mission is equipping students and professors with, with scientific, historical, and philosophical reasons to follow Christ. And it's no less than our vision, which is thoughtful Christianity, transforming lives on campus today and changing culture tomorrow. So uh, it started because people weren't given answers at one particular university. A few students said, we need something to start, and they did. And this was back in uh, 2008 initially, but 2011 as a 501c3. And uh, I came in as the second president in 2015. I had unsuccessfully achieved my first PhD. I was told I had too much of a faith perspective while I was all but dissertation. And uh, I had enough stupidity in me to go on for a PhD a second time <laughs> and did so while teaching at Indiana University and running the faculty ministry with Campus Crusade now at, at, at uh, Purdue University. And I finished five years later at University of Aberdeen in Scotland. And this organization, Rochelle Christie, called me and said, hey, we've got an opening. What is it? Uh, president, I'll take it. What does that do? <laughs> <laughs> And I joined, and uh, it's been a fun ride for the last eight years, but that's, um, you know, that's kind of our DNA is apologetics evangelism with undergrad, and we then work with professors in trying to uh, help them to integrate faith and reason, faith and life, faith and vocation, and have an influence. So back how do you work with professors? Do you, like, do you reach out to them? How does that work? Yeah, so, you know, there are there are a number of Christian professors in our university system. You wouldn't know this. I'm, I'm working on a book on this right now, and I've, I've written on this and published on this before, how we lost the universities. But from 1636 in Harvard um, all the way up until about 1840, these were all not just theistic. These were Christ-centered institutes. Every single president of a public university was also a member of the clergy, and would teach the capstone class on moral philosophy, helping people to be good people, not just informed people about how the world works. And up until 1880, you know, the church and chapel attendance were still required across the board. So this is a relatively new phenomenon that we think the smart people are uh, the non-Christians, the atheists who reign in sometimes in the last 20 years in terror with atheism on the university campus. They were all started by us, by, by Christians. And so, you know, we still have a number of Christians, but things are changing rapidly, Beckett. Um, and we need to reach the professor. Bill Bright, the founder of Campus Crusade, said on his deathbed, if I had to do, if I had to do it all over again, I would begin with professors. And the reason why is, in my view, it is the 1040 window of the Western world. It is the greatest omission of the Great Commission with respect to thinking about strategic leverage. The university is where it's at in terms of the cultural influencer of ideas. It is the most influential institution in civilization. Outcomes are our business leaders, our political leaders, our K-12 educators, 
um, our politicians, our journalists, media, one third to one fourth of world leaders, prime ministers and presidents get one of their academic degrees from a United States university. So if you want to change the world, change the university. And so strategically, uh, this is what we're doing, but we can't just be on the outside. We have to have political alliances. We have to have a, a platform to speak on. And this is where uh, legal battles come in, too, to be able to keep a platform open. It used to be these were our institutions. Right now, we're just trying to get enough freedom to, to exist on these campuses. Uh, but then we need to not just stop there. We need to go for um, the, the source of the problem and the potential source of the solution, and that is the professor. You know, politics is downstream from culture, culture from education, and the apex of education is the university. The professors, I mean, in the 90s, the ratio from left to right was 2.3 to 1. Now it is 12 to 1 if you're talking about those getting ready to retire, and it's 23 to 1 if you're talking about uh, those new professors ages 40 and under who are like Supreme Court justices who, once they get tenure, have a lifetime appointments. And in New England, it's 27 to 1. And when I give this to audiences, these stats, and they say, whoa, and the wife hits the husband and says, we need to make sure Johnny takes a religion class. And that's where I say, no, the ratio there is 70 to 1. And so parents and grandparents are literally paying for the apostasy of their own children. Wow. And so if we don't start thinking about the universities as one of the primary missions in the entire United States and in the world, we're going to lose downstream. We've got to go upstream. And so we try to reach professors for Christ. We try to get professors who are happen to be Christians to start being Christian professors, missional professors, right. and be the best in their industry, like an Alvin Plantinga in philosophy, for example to be the best in their industry, but also to think about what they're doing is not just a job, but a calling, not just an occupation, but a vocation. Mm -hmm. We'll be right back after this short break. So basically, they need to kind of come out of the closet as Christians in the universities and, <laughs> and teach that, yeah. Yeah, and, and it's not just, here's how bad it gets. It's, it's not just that we were told as Christians now to go into our closets. They're now coming into our closets. One story, a friend of mine who is a physics professor and uh, is our faculty advisor, for example, at Purdue. She was up for tenure and the department head called her into the office and said, um, I need to talk. And she said, well, what about? Well, I heard that you deny theistic evolution. And she said, what? Where did you hear that from? Well, the department head of biology. OK, well, how did he hear this? Uh, he heard it from one of his grad students. How did he hear about it? He apparently was attending a Sunday school class you were teaching at your church on God and science. And she said, wait, let me back up. I never said anything, nor would I about that. That's not even my topic. We're superior to the biologists, first of all. They came a long time after us. <laughs> that deals with evolution. We don't even talk about that in physics. So I never would have said that. And he said, okay, be careful because you're up for tenure. They're coming into our closets. You can't run anymore with this stuff. And according to some authors, the culture war is over. We lost. We now need to go pursue dual citizenship in Hungary. I say no. <laughs> it's not about prayer in schools anymore. It's about cognitive liberty. It's about free thinking. 
that used to be Berkeley's mantra in the 60s. Now it's about cancel culture because we've been overtaken by kind of a Marxist regime that now the Richard Dawkins of the world are, are seeking alliances. In fact, I've been travel speaking with one of the former neo-atheists, and we together as a liberal atheist and a conservative Christian speak on campuses on viewpoint diversity, the death of intellectual diversity in the universities. So the universities are going through an entirely different revolution than where they were a hundred years ago when Christians got kicked out of their own property. And now they're getting kicked out because a new guard is coming in and they're playing for keeps. Wow. Well, you mentioned legal issues. What are some of the legal issues that you guys have faced on these campuses? Uh, at any one time, I have three to six uh, situations going on. Um, so right now we're in litigation with the Biden administration's Department of Education over something that was very close to what we were kicked off all the Cal State campuses for about six years ago until a recent federal victory of the Ninth Circuit Court that we won. Um, and that is, uh, for lack of a better word, the all-comers policy. And that is, uh, if you're going to be a, an accepted or approved group on campus, you have to agree not just that your members don't have to be Christians, but your officers don't have to be either. And on the face of it, that's just craziness. You're going to have a meat eater to be the president of a vegetarian club or a neo-Nazi over a Jewish club. You know, so why should we acquiesce and say that uh, we can have atheists be presidents of a Christian club? No one else has to do that. And so what happened was the society, the, the Secular Student Alliance, and I'm on their email list, so I found this out. They had planned on uh, Trump's last day in office that they were going to sue the Betsy DeVos Trump Department of Education that put in a regulation that was supposed to further protect Christian campus ministries that were being discriminated against for their beliefs. And if public universities were going to discriminate, then the federal government would put something more scary than just the First Amendment to the administration, and that is withholding federal funding at the universities. Yeah. And so you can see why the Secular Student Alliance and American Atheists decided to put a lawsuit together and um, against Trump on his last day, knowing that Biden was about to win. And so I knew that was going to happen. And a week later, I contacted our attorneys and we wanted in. And so we're now defending as of week one of Joe's campaign or presidency. We now defend Joe. So we were going to get T-shirts. We stand with Joe. The atheists are trying to sue Joe. <laughs> uh, that would have been we've we've had a hundred percent victories so far. Uh, we would have had victory there. They found out that we were in on it, and that Alliance Defending Freedom was in on it. They pulled it, and in conjunction with the Biden administration, he has pulled executive privilege and is dismantling the regulation now. And so, uh, you know, the, the typical things are, um, you know, student fees that everybody pays into, and they discriminate against us and don't allow us to do that. Um, for example, University of Nebraska is another one. Uh, that one, the, the California one was over the all-comers policy. Nebraska is over student fees. We were going to bring in a professor, a professor who, as someone like you, has been trained in apologetics and philosophy. You probably know Robert Audi. I've got his big yellow Cambridge Dictionary of Philosophy on the shelf over there. Anyone who's been trained in philosophy knows that book. Well, he was going to be the speaker, and they wouldn't fund us. Why? Because of ideological difference. They didn't even know the talk title yet. It was going to be on the problem of evil. He's a philosopher. <laughs> and moreover, they didn't realize that just because he's from Notre Dame, 
He used to be a full professor at Nebraska and the department head of philosophy. So our attorneys on that one licked their chops and we litigated. And even the governor of Nebraska uh, spoke into it on our side in a local newspaper. So student fees, um, uh, words, words that are violence. So speech codes on campus, words you ought not say. Um, they can say everything else against you, but you ought not say other things that are not part of political truth. Um, and so speech codes, speech zones, all comers policy and student fees are typically the thing. We've had 130 legal inquiries since I've been here, four federal victories, five appellate victories, two uh, amicus briefs for SCOTUS Supreme Court victories. And it's just nonstop. It just keeps coming. And so um, it's not us that are canceling. And I've been canceled myself four times. And I had to go legal when I was a professor, because even though I used atheistic textbooks uh, in all my classes, because uh, I felt like I had to. The other part, the other side doesn't have to use Christian textbooks, but I have to, to cover myself. Um, I used an ethics book that was standard in the field by an atheist. And when it got to human sexuality, I gave both sides of the argument from a biomedical perspective on homosexuality. And um, this former pastor who had turned gay, a student of mine, uh, turned me in, charged me with creating a suicidal environment. And I had to have two of my atheist students come to my defense and Alliance Defending Freedom put four letters across the bow to finally get me exonerated. And even the fact that that happened to me 10 years ago just got me canceled last month from the second uh, founded British Canadian university once they promoted me as a public lecturer on a total neutral topic and a student Googled me and found that case 10 years ago. Wow. That's amazing. That's incredible. Um, okay. So tell, let's talk about some of the highlights. Talk about what happened at Ohio State uh, to, P to PhD students. Yeah. So we have, um, you know, we've had some cases where some chapters uh, at different campuses run differently. Uh, this one is, is particularly evangelistic and they do a lot of whiteboarding, you know, God does not exist, change my mind, or God does exist, change my mind. And then they can get in debates, but we, we like to generate more light than heat. Even though the last time I touched a light bulb, it was, it was rather hot. Um, so you can't get away from the heat, but we try to generate more light than heat and have good charitable conversations. But we think that the truth is on our side. Debate is not hate. We ought to engage in it, especially at the universities. And so we've been seeing 50 students per um, per year coming to Christ, or maybe it was per semester, actually, I think, coming to Christ at Ohio State University. Uh, other places, we see uh, amazing stories about, um, you know, PhD students. Had one of the university that I was working with that, um, you know, we were we were trying to train PhD students on how to be professors who happen to be Christians, no, Christian professors, yes. And this guy was from China. We get a ton of Chinese graduate students at the university where I'm located at at Purdue. And um, we have, you know, literally thousands. And they were, this guy was introduced to me because he was in the philosophy department. I was in the philosophy department. And so we thought he would be a Christian. And I said, so tell me your story. How did you come to know Christ? Were your parents Christian? He says, no, they, they were Buddhist. Um, and I said, oh, wow, how did you become a Christian? He says, well, actually, I'm an atheist. And I was like, oh, no, well, we have this other group that we're doing, and that's dealing with Christian apologetics. 
reasons why to believe. And he says, no, I'd, I'd rather keep coming to this group. Uh, I'm almost done with my dissertation. And the reason why the Chinese government is paying me to come over here is to study Marxism in the West for my last year before writing my dissertation. And I'm utterly intrigued on why people in America take religion so seriously. So he kept coming to our group. The, the times that our group was meeting was in conflict with the Marxist classes he was taking. So he stopped going to those classes, <laughs> kept coming to our group. And through one, a series of one thing over another, he ended up coming to Christ. And he went back on the job market in China, now not as a villager, but as a professor, a Christian professor going covert operations uh, in, in China, paid for by the Chinese government. Um, we've got other stories like that uh, that are at the Ph.D. level who are future professors as well. So um, that even uh, interesting thing, uh, you're in California still, I think, right? Yeah, in Los Angeles. Yeah. Los Angeles. So UCLA, where Campus Crusade was founded. Well, uh, we were trying to start a chapter there. It wasn't working out so well. And I told you about the legal issues we were facing at the time. Well, our group was still on the campus. They just weren't formally approved. And uh, the uh, president of the Atheist Club decided to start meeting with us. One thing led to another, and he became a Christian and closed down the Atheist Club at UCLA. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> wow. And so talk about the, the big events that the fruits, um, you talk about the fruits range from book outcomes, professors going public. You talk about that and new ministries that, that have come out of this. Yeah, we, uh, you know, if, if viewers can see this, my background's got a lot of books, but it's also got boots. And I, and I want that to show that we're not just about books. We are nerds like the best of them, but we want to get her done. We want to be boots on the ground. We want to be on the campus. Uh, we want to have practical things, not just theoretical things. And so we say, like the Greek philosopher Epictetus, we have two ears and one mouth for a reason, so that we listen more, so that we diagnose our culture, so that we diagnose the, the psychology of the individual. And so we do big events like debates. And at one point, I did a debate, uh, moderated the debate with William Lane Craig uh, and the department head of Duke University, Alex Rosenberg. I got Rosenberg because I went down a list of the top 150 atheists in the country, uh, starting with Stephen Hawking and Leonard, Leonard Mladenow, who was his co-author. Once they found out who their opponent was, they jumped out. I went after um, Leonard Susskind, the founder of string theory at Stanford. He declined. A Nobel Prize in physicist. Uh, he, he declined. Finally got down to number 14, which is Alex Rosenberg. And we uh, scored a, a contracted book deal with Routledge University. And we flew in uh, department heads of um, rhetoric from universities that were atheists and Christians to be on the judge panel and had a Democrat and Republican congressman on the judge panel with several others. We ended up packing the place with 4,200 people live, 10,000 watching from uh, 60 countries around the world that night. And had a great debate that turned into a book project after with multiple atheists and Christians on physics, philosophy, and, and rhetoric commenting on, on the debate. And it was crystal clear that uh, William Lane Craig won that debate from the formal judge panel, from the live audience, and from the international audience. And um, one person commented to me after he was considering throwing out his faith. He wasn't sure if we had all that. And he was a professor of bio. Um, bioengineering. His wife happened to be a director of the campus ministry of InterVarsity at the time. 
Can you imagine if he would have thrown out his faith and what a marriage looks like with one atheist and one Christian, what yeah. that would have done? He came to the debate, and while they didn't talk biology, he came away from there thinking, oh, my gosh, the other guy, a department head, philosophy of science, got slaughtered. And so what it tells me is that we do have the resources, and it highly encouraged this guy. The next year, we did another one, but this time we decided, well, you can't one-up the best debater like William Lane Craig. So we decided, well, what would get the pastors interested in the frats on Friday night, the frat parties? Well, bring in an ex-porn star and an ex-sex slave, and uh, they'll want to come and see or listen to the ex-porn star, right? Mm -hmm. And the pastors are all about social justice now. No one really knows what the term means. It's a big Trojan horse, but they think helping the downtrodden. So they all want to come. And, well, they wouldn't understand maybe what William Lane Craig is saying, but certainly an ex-sex slave, an ex-porn star who give their stories from slavery, and they both said their positions were slavery, different different channels, but both slavery, hard to get out of. And they realized when they were in the back room behind the, the green screen that they had met each other on a porn set in Los Angeles. And this is only their second time, and now they've both become Christians. And so they were giving their story from slavery to freedom, and what better soil for the gospel to take place than that idea. And then after they gave their soil and, and their, their, their message, um, we threw a softball out there and had two debaters in the audience come in the very next day. And the theme that year was human sex trafficking. <laughs> and so all the audience were tear-eyed. The only one who wasn't was the pimp, and he wouldn't raise his hand and let us know. But everybody else, Democrat, Republican, Buddhist, dog, cat, frog, everybody else in the audience agreed that sex trafficking is an absolute evil. Does that mean there are moral absolutes? Does that mean there's a moral law? Does a moral law imply a moral lawmaker? So then we had John Hare from Yale University, an evangelical, come up to the stage uh, with Michael Roos, uh, who's written 40 books on Darwinism, 20 on philosophical, and he's an atheist or agnostic from Florida State, and debate God and morality. Uh, so we still do the apologetics evangelism, the debate, but we did it in a creative way where we could tap into real issues in the world um, that we're seeing right now in our culture and saying, which worldview best accounts for uh, uh, a perspective that there are moral absolutes that can speak into these obvious injustices? And how do you have a moral law without a moral law maker? And so uh, we we constantly are are moving into this this area and trying to do this on our campuses. So we're very practical uh, to this side, to my right side. I've got the boots to the left, the books. We're not just about boots. We're about books. We want to see by God's grace souls saved. We want to save the soul of the university. And we want the, the opportunity to have a platform at our universities that we started to just have debates and have conversations because we believe that Christianity is true and it is good for the world and people need to see how it is good to the world. Yeah. Yes. Amen. And so wait, what are, what are RC press booklets? What are the, what are those? Yeah. So this comes out of our, our newest branch or division that we just launched and um, we've got them available in digital or printable on a plethora of 40, almost 40 different topics from your, your standard um, problem of evil and suffering, the consistency of science and scripture, um, uh, the reliability of the Bible, 
all the way to everything now in race, class, sex, gender, ethnicity, ability, um, nationality, and even religion. Christianity, the biggest oppressor, oppressor of all because the Bible is the oppressor, right? Christianity is not just false, but it's harmful and hideous and oppressive. And so we've got books on is Christianity good or bad for the world, uh, written by PhDs. That one's by me. Um, uh, three books by the leader of the intelligent design movement. Here's an example of one of them. Um, Stephen Myers, the signature itself. Yeah. His newest one, the God hypothesis. We've got a booklet on that. Uh, does God exist? Um, we have booklets by William Lane Craig, who one of his two dissertations was on the resurrection. Um, and these are all almost all written by PhDs um, on practical issues like race, class, sex, gender right now. And does God exist? Can I trust the Bible and so forth? They're all written, almost all written by PhDs. They're accessible um, and concise because they're 25 pages mm-hmm. and they're written at the 11th grade reading level. So these are good on-ramps for everybody. A lot of people don't like to read books. They're, they may not read Stephen Meyer's 700-page books, but they'll read his booklets. And then in the back, it says, if you want to read more uh, with a lot of footnotes, go there. Yeah. So something for everybody that proclaims that Jesus is the Messiah, is the truth, is the Logos, is the reason why the universities were founded, is the reason why the hospitals were founded, is the reason why capitalism was founded, it brought out uh, you know, 60% of the world out of poverty, the reason why a accountable government was founded, and we could draw all that stuff back, what made the West best, not its defective parts, but what made it best is because of its Christian influence. It's not only good for the world, but it's true. And you're, you're working on a book right now too, right? Campus, right. From Campus to Culture. Yeah, that's one that's going to be, I've got two academic books, you know, on Aristotle, Maimonides, Aquinas, something that, you know, probably negative two people purchased. (laughs) My wife wouldn't even read my dissertation topic. Um, And then three books on my past on Mormonism, uh, one with all scholars and one was a former BYU professor, one for Mormon missionaries by ex-Mormon missionaries who are now Christians and so forth. This one's going to be my first pop level book. And it's done in the sense that it's it's and and one that's not just pop, but widespread with great cultural interest, because one day we all woke up in in recent days and realized this is no longer grandma's America. This place has changed. There are people who hate America and there are people who once loved America who can't stand what America has become. And so the the numbers have dropped significantly on 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 the number of people who want to be patriotic. Every time you put your hand and do a, on the heart and do a national anthem with your kids going to sports events, you're sitting there thinking about culture. Um, we all are feeling like we need a double dose of Zoloft or Prozac in this culture. <laughs> it is not grandma's America anymore. And we all know that. And you can see it in the corporate world. You can see it in the churches. You can see it in the seminaries, Christian academic societies. It's everywhere. But where does it come from, Beckett? And I maintain that everything comes to the culture from the campus. You find an idea and it germinated in the campus. Um, It's not common sense. It has to be theorized. It has to be cleverly 
rationalized. And so politics is downstream from culture. If we can just get Trump in, if we can just get Biden, if we can just get a political savior in, that's helpful if we get someone who agrees with common sense. But that's downstream. And we got to stop putting chlorine downstream when the poison is upstream. uh, Politics downstream from culture, culture from campus. And at the highest level of campus is the professor and the administrators. We can see what's going on with Harvard right now in Columbia and how we've gotten the largest Jewish event uh, attack on them proportionally larger than 9-11 in America since the Holocaust. And how many people are coming out of these universities now um, hating the Jews and anti-Semites? People are now pulling funding from some of these universities, but they should have thought about that before. Why do you keep funding people who hate you? It's not just anti-Semitism. It's, it's colonialism. It's, it's everything under the guise of critical theory, critical pedagogy, critical queer theory, critical um, race theory, critical this theory, that theory. Critical theory is Marxism plus race, plus gender, plus glaciology, critical glaciology. There was there was an article written on the critical social justice of glaciers, a feminist theory of glaciology. Wow. But this stuff is just nuts. And people are wondering, how did this happen? How did this stop being grandma's America almost overnight? And I tell the story how it didn't just happen overnight. This stuff's been there for decades. And something that it, it, it had to run its course and get critical mass, get some key players in key universities to start sponsoring disciples, pamphlets, books, and so forth. I tell the story of how we lost the universities for the first revolution between 1880 and 1930 and how we're going through the second revolution right now. And the first revolutionaries who overtook uh, the universities are now being ejected and saying, go find your own place because we now own the universities. And through all the DEI or what I call DIE, die departments and die officers uh they've moved into medicine mathematics and engineering and then through this they've moved into the corporate world and into the churches and into the campus ministries and christian academic societies and seminaries and this social justice critical social justice as opposed to biblical social justice has find a found a a vibrant host maybe even more than the secular universities and that is the churches and they've swooned so many pastors who are, well, let's just say the skinny jeans and fog machines don't have much of a shelf life. <laughs> uh, but this social justice stuff, this is about compassion. This is about helping the downtrodden. Doesn't God help uh, hurt, hate, hate oppression? And isn't sin oppression? And haven't we oppressed people? And what would Jesus do? And so the pastors who many of them have been going blah, 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 for 100 years we excommunicated the head of Christ and retained only the heart and the hands of Christ. It's no wonder that this false ideology has swept in. Um, it's, it's, it's galvanized even the churches. And so now the barbarians are no longer just at the gates. They're in the citadels. And so we're in a two-front warfare over the soul of not just individuals, but the soul of culture and America. And you can see what this is doing. America is the philanthropic economic missions uh, ship of the world. And as our generation after generation are going through these secular baptismal fonts, the Christian consensus and population is shrinking, and with it, the charitable dollar going over to Honduras and Haiti. So I tell people, keep supporting them, 
But you need to be sacrificial these days. And everybody, every Christian in America needs to be thinking about the campus. It's the university, stupid. That's where it's coming from. And so all of us need to think this Bud Light pushback is only a mild pushback. It's going to come back again. So long as they own the universities, you give them your children. So how can so let's let's end on this. How can people uh, find Rocio Christie? Like, how can they get involved? How can they support? Tell us about that. So you can go to RocioChristie.org, R-A-T-I-O Christ with an I at the end, RocioChristie.org. You can see us online. Uh, if you've got kids, grandkids that want to get involved in one of our high school clubs, if you want to help start a club in one of your churches, so that it's not just skinny jeans and fog machines, but you're actually, can you believe it, equipping them to get ready to go into a university with Friday night party night on Frat Row and with Monday through Friday in with the professors who are now 23 to 1. No pastor, no parent can overcome that. So we provide resources now like this, digital or in print that can be read and accessed by high schoolers, by church small groups, by the pastor, for God's sake, uh, to help them equip people not just to survive, but to thrive in the universities. We don't have to just survive. We can start leading people to Christ. We can start Rosho Christie clubs. You can join a club that already exists, or you can help us launch a new one. You can be a donor for what we're doing. Stop funding those who hate you. Stop thinking about funding your alma mater, which is subverting your entire wealth that you're supposed to be passing down. It's terrible stewardship. There's a lot of good organizations out there. Ours is just one. But stop funding those who hate you and start funding those who are properly reading the culture and doing evangelism, as Paul said, to the Jew, I become a Jew, to the Greek, I become a Greek, I become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. We are the ones at the university that are focused on apologetics evangelism for the undergrad and are focused on integration of faith and reason, faith and life, faith and vocation for the professors to start transforming the universities with a bigger, better, more gospel-oriented um, position so that we can start through the long march through the institutions like the Marxists taught us about. We can start reclaiming the intellectual voice of Christ, not downstream, but upstream. I love that. We'll put that link below, uh, rashochristie.org. And Corey Miller, thank you so much for, for doing all this work and being at the, the center of this battle. And thank you for coming on the show. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks so much for inviting me. Go team, go God. Thank you. I'll see you guys next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Beckett Cook Show. Your support makes this content possible. All episodes of The Beckett Cook Show are also available on YouTube. For more information about Beckett and his ministry, visit his website at beckettcook.com. Thank you to the team at Life Audio for their partnership with us. If you go to lifeaudio.com, you will find more faith-centered podcasts about prayer, Bible study, parenting, and more. Hello, this is Dr. Doug Grotheis, host of Truth Tribe, where we seek the truth through reason and evidence about what matters most. And we are not tribal since truth is for everyone. 
please join me at the Truth Tribe as I discuss the reasons for Christian faith, the Christian worldview, and moral issues such as abortion and gender ideology. To listen now, go to lifeaudio.com or search Truth Tribe on your favorite podcast app.